0: You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. I am really, really thrilled today to introduce Sukinder Singh Cassidy, who is going to speak with us today. Sukinder is an amazing entrepreneur, repeat entrepreneur, has been a Big Mucky Muck at Google and now has her own venture called Joyous. And uh, I think we should stop listening to me and start listening to her. So without further ado, Sukinder, take it away. Thank you, Heidi. And obviously, I'm absolutely delighted to be here. But um, whether you know it or not, Heidi was the Big Muckety Muck. Uh, And the first time I had the privilege of meeting her was when I was at Google and leading our women's leadership community and trying to expose the women leaders at Google uh, to, you know, and how to think about venture, entrepreneurship, whatever, you know, whatever uh, perspective I could bring them outside of Google on leadership. And really, there was no better first speaker to have than Heidi because she is in many ways the original female entrepreneur in the valley um, and one that a lot of us looked up to. Um, I certainly did when I was 27 and starting my first company. As you know, a role model for me, and certainly for a lot of women in the valley uh, who are thinking about starting their own ventures. So, really, not me, but Heidi. Um, first of all, I'm absolutely delighted to be here. I think it's um, it's always incredible to come to Stanford. Uh, I, ne- I did not have the privilege of going to Stanford. I grew up in Canada, I went to school in Canada, but just you know, such a respected and amazing institution. And obviously, being in the valley for the last 15 years, you know, there's no way you cannot feel the presence and the influence of Stanford. So, delighted to be here. Um, I know you guys have a lot of great speakers who come in, speakers who've been very successful, you know, speakers who come to talk about fundraising, you know, how to launch your first product, what's great product design, you know. But really, when I took an approach in, in crafting this presentation, uh, I guess I took somewhat of a more personal approach, and I really wanted to share with you, if I could, what it's been like for me over the last 15 years in taking, I think, many startup journeys through the valley. Um, I look at choice and I think of it as startup number eight or startup number 26, depending on how you count them. And I'll explain in a moment. Uh, When I first arrived in the valley, I was 27 years old. My first company was Open TV. I arrived as a business development manager. Um, When I arrived, uh, I quit in six months. I thought I'm not meant to be in the valley. I was wrong to think I could do business development here maybe this is not the place for me, although I moved to the Valley to be part of the startup environment. Um, but I went to my next company, which was Jungly, and I ended up working for four amazing founders who ultimately sold the company to Amazon. Um, I went to Amazon. I was there for a year when it was 1,200 people. I got to be the first person to let third-party merchants onto Amazon. And I got to work you know, as a very young person, even with Jeff, which was amazing. Uh, and I really wanted to be an entrepreneur, and from there, uh, became the business founder at 27 or 28, I can't remember what, but I remember it was a lot younger than I am now, um, with four engineering co founders. The original founder was out of UCSD, um, a uh, professor there of computer science. Four uh, great engineers and myself. I was a business founder and started Yodali. For those of you familiar, Yodali is a financial services software company. Today it's about eight or 900 people. Um, I was there for five years in pretty much every role biz, dad, sales, raised venture financing ran product at some point, ran marketing at one point. Um, I left thinking I would start another company. Um, uh, The guys at Google had started, you know, Google at the same time, we shared common investors. Google uh, called me up and said, hey, why don't you come join us. I was like, you know, it's too big, right, 1,200 people. Like, really, I want to go start a company. I've done one. I think I can do one again. Um, I was maybe 32 or 33 years old. And I had a dialogue with them over seven months and they called me up one day and they said, hey, you know what, we know you want a Greenfield opportunity. There's this thing called local. We really don't know what to do. Um, Yahoo has a product. Why don't you come figure it out with us? And it took me all of about, I don't know, a weekend or two to figure out that the opportunity to build local at Google would be a pretty damn interesting one. (laughs) And I went and my first job at Google was to partner with a guy named Brett Taylor who is the original product manager. He's now the CTO at Facebook. I was a business person. He was the product manager and we built Google Local and Maps. Um, I went on to lead our Google Video team, which actually was a failure, right. Um, Talks about headwinds and tailwinds when you're starting companies. Um, And ultimately we acquired YouTube instead. I ran the Google Books and uh, video, books and Library and Scholar teams. And so that was, you know, in many ways regarded as success, but very controversial to be scanning books. And I was at Google about a year when they asked me to take over international, which was everything outside of Western Europe. Um, and we ended up launching 18 different countries, including China, Brazil, India, you know, expanded Australia, Korea, Argentina, the list goes on. And so the reason I say I could be startup 8 or 18 right now is because I felt like in many ways I was running 18 different startups at that time, It's 18 different countries that we were taking from zero to, you know, um, to maturity. And I spent six years at Google doing that. I left Google because I missed entrepreneurship and I wanted really to go be a CEO or to build something on my own. I mean, it's amazing to have Google as a tailwind when you're trying to start new businesses, Um, but of course, like everyone, I sort of I still felt the urge to, um, to go, go see if I could build something on my own. I spent a year at Excel uh, looking at all things commerce because I love commerce. I went to Polyvore as a CEO. Um, it was the second time in my career. I left something after six months, which was a very difficult decision. Um, and I started Joyce a year ago, right. So I count Joyce as startup number eight. I've been lucky so far <laughs> that they've all been amazing journeys. Um, but I do feel like I've had the opportunity to grow things within a large company, outside of a company. You know, I've certainly been through very difficult times and times where the, where, you know, the momentum is just amazing, including a polyvore and I hope it's joyous. So the perspective I hope to bring you is sort of what is the constant among those, op- you know, those things that I've seen. And what are the things that hold true in a world that's always about change, right? I've been involved with many different startups. I certainly advise several. Um, But what are the things that are constant? And so the reason for the first image is really simple. I thought about calling this presentation the making of mojo. Because if there's one thing that an entrepreneur is meant to do, it's basically rub two sticks together and make fire, right? And this is the fundamental thing that defines an entrepreneur versus an executive. And it is all about, in my mind, getting started. um, you all are really smart, you get it, right? An object at rest stays in motion, an object, in, um, an object at rest stays at rest, an object in motion continues in motion. So what is your first goal as an entrepreneur? To get started. How many, how many of you inside this room have started a company? How many of you hope to start a company? So when you think about starting a company, I think one of the most daunting things is the fear of the unknown, Right? And I and I don't know how else to describe it, but to say when I was you know when I was in my final year of school at Western um, up in Canada at business school undergrad business school I feared finance I was never very good at it you know it wasn't I wasn't great at numbers I was good at numbers math sciences physics but you know corporate finance sort of eluded me a little bit so what did I do I went and got a job as an investment banker <laughs> and two years later you know numbers became something that you know I mean I've always loved numbers but. Numbers in finance specifically, balance sheet, income statement, all of those things became a very known art to me, right. And I think it's one of the things today that, you know, I hope differentiates me as as a leader is, is, is just my ability to understand financing, debt structures, equity structures, what have you. But I think the same thing applies to being an entrepreneur, right. I think simply getting started, the act of commitment, you know, is not about thinking about it in your head. It is about literally leaning forward and taking the very first step. And for me, that involves who do you tell about it, right? What do you do about it? And how do you get the first person, the very first person to take a step with you? I don't care if that person is the person who creates your first logo. <laughs> I don't care if it's the person sitting beside you, you know, who you share the idea with, who agrees to help you know, brainstorm it with you. But the simple act of involving someone else you know, in something that's inside your head is the point at which you start being an entrepreneur. And I think it's, if there's anything to sort of, it's a message to you as you think about how to get started on your journey, it's simply this, start, right? Tell one other person, <laughs> lean in and just by doing the mechanics, right, of starting something, whether it's writing a business plan, whatever, you will in fact start, right? And what is such a mysterious art will become very, known to you very quickly simply by the act of engaging in it. And you know, I think everybody talks about being an entrepreneur. For me, the second time being an entrepreneur on my own, starting another company after Yodelly, was a lot harder than I expected. Right at 27, I did it without you know any thought to it. I got this opportunity to partner with four great engineers, and I was I just jumped right in. The second time around for me, I was 42 no, 41, 40. <laughs> you know, I'm now 42. Um, but really, I sat at the precipice. And you would think having done you know, a number of startups within Google and having done it um, once already, it would have been easy. And it was remarkably difficult. And the thing that was difficult the second time around for me was ego risk, right. I'd been successful, I'd been an executive, people had a defined path that they thought I would take, right. And instead I was like, wow, I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning. I know I could be a growth company CEO. I know I could go back to a really great executive position. And I choose to go back to, you know, basically proving I can make something of nothing and rub two sticks together and make fire. And that was a very risky decision, not from a financial perspective, from an ego perspective. I would submit to all of you that the the most precious thing you have right now is the opportunity to go do it for the first time. There is no ego risk, right? You have the opportunity to dive right in. And I think that's actually one of the most remarkable things about being an entrepreneur at a relatively early age. There is like, there's nothing holding you back other than the simple act of getting started. Um, So everybody thinks about finding the unlock, right? This notion that when you're an entrepreneur, you have to keep pivoting, right? It's like jiggering keys in a lock, right? Or more importantly, it's like having 100 keys, right? And any one of them may unlock the door, and you keep putting a new one in. you know. And particularly with a rusty key, you keep adjusting, right? You keep hoping like, is this the one? And you know, (laughs) it takes a little bit of fiddling, but in fact, one of those you, you hope are the key to success. So I think for many, for many people in the room, they think being an entrepreneur is about finding this unlock. Okay. I agree with you that it is, right. There are companies that are luck- lucky to find that unlock very early. The vast majority do not, right. So the entire thesis of my presentation is actually not about finding your, your unlock. It's about what do you do with the time in between. Because you don't know if your inflection point, you know, is a day one, you know, day 180, day one thousand, you know, year five, year ten, right? So what are the characteristics of what I think of as sustaining entrepreneurship? What do you do between now and up into the right? Right? What are the things you can do to affect, you know, finding that up into the right? And really, if you don't know how long that journey is, part of the journey I think of great entrepreneurs is how do you manage and lead in between, right. So a lot of people think that you know, the journey of an entrepreneur is simply to get to this unlock. I would submit that most great entrepreneurs you know, don't get there to that unlock on day one or day two. You know, it's months, it's years, right. And it's all about up and to the right, a little bit of lateral progress, up and to the right, back a step. You know? And so for me, it's the defining characteristics that I look for in other people that I invest in, and and myself as a leader and an entrepreneur, right, how do you manage that journey and what makes those people distinctive? So um, I think there is actually something to this thesis, right. The valley is driven largely by the notion of the product visionary, particularly in the consumer Internet, right. There's a reason for this. I mean, I'm a believer as much as anyone else. I've lived and worked among the most amazing engineers. Both at Yodley we had an incredible engineering team, certainly at Google, right, and been able to partner with some of the most amazing product managers, right. The key if you want to be a founder is are you a product profit, right. I don't mean do you get it right. I mean do you lean forward and have a thesis on, you know, what might be around the corner for the consumer. It doesn't matter that you're right or wrong, but when venture capitalists want to invest, they want to invest in this, right. A professional CEO is different. At the founder level, whether you ever end up being the CEO or not, what they're looking for is the product profit, right? So what does the product profit look like and how do you become a product profit, right? I don't think that it is simply instinctual, right? I think that yes, there are people who are great coders and there are people who are great business development people and there are people who are great salespeople. You know, but often, you know, the insight you have comes from something you know or an area in which you feel like you have a unique ability you know, to see where the customer might be going. Right. So when many people ask why are women starting a lot of companies these days and a lot of e-commerce companies, I simply say it's not all that odd, right. It's, it's actually the same model that has existed in venture and in the valley for a long time. Maybe women are starting lots of companies because they feel like they have a unique insight on the customer. Maybe they feel like they have a unique insight on curation or delight or urgency or you know whatever it might be in the e-commerce arena where they are the core customer, right? So I think this is a very known model. And I think the other key thing if you're planning to be a founder to think about is are you this person? If you're not this person, is your co-founder this person, right? But how and where do you construct a product vision from? And I'd submit, again, it's not about you know, it needs to be, you know, some, some amazing person that you've never met and it can't possibly be you. In fact, it can be you, right? But it's where are the areas where you believe that you have a, a lean forward mentality or an insight that maybe, maybe you could go right. And while everybody else is going left, there may be something to trying that out. That's the core essence of a product profit, right? And I do think that if you're a founder without a product profit or you don't feel like you're the product profit, the number one thing you need to do you know, is step back and say, okay, where is this gene in my company, right? How do I find it? How do I nurture it? And as I said, if you're the founder, you know, the reality is it's you or it's your co-founder, right? And, and I think this is one of the most interesting things. Um, I came from judging a venture capitalist uh, venture competition yesterday, a pitch competition of startups and they were all amazing. they were all amazing companies. Um, but you know, but, in, but in one case, I felt like we were talking about a business plan that had a target customer that was a very attractive advertising demographic. But the key thing a code judge asked of the company in question is like, I get that this is a great advertising demographic to base a site around. The question is do these people self-identify, you know, as being part of this, or is this simply an attractive business proposition? And I think that is the essence of the question, right? There are attractive business opportunities, but in the, consumer insight, in the consumer internet space, it's about where is the unique consumer insight, right? And how do you construct it? And from what do you construct it? Whether it's your own experience or whether it is a competency that you might have. Um, Reed Hoffman always says, you can think big or you think, can think small. It takes the same amount of energy. So why think, why think small? You know, and this comes back to my point on momentum. I think one of the most daunting things about being an entrepreneur is, you know, is ego risk. It's the notion that you say, "Well, if I say I have a big vision and I fail, do I look like an idiot?" Okay. Well, I look at the place in which we live. Right. I would rather step out and step out boldly because it takes the same energy to start a company. Right. Whether you start a company with a thesis of a $10 million profit line or you know a $100 million profit line, it takes the same fundamental energy to build it. Right? So if you're going to lean in, my philosophy is lean in all the way. Right? <laughs> lean in all the way because I think that part of the key experience of an entrepreneur who's in between now and up and to the right is not just sustaining your own energy and passion for something, but sustaining that of your team hard to keep people rallied around a small vision, right? So if your biggest risk is ego risk, forget about it. The most important thing you can do is say, okay, my job is to sustain myself and a team on, a, on an idea and an, that I have passion around and sustained passion around. And one that's big enough and exciting enough to get me out of bed every day, right? And I, and I think that that is what will draw other people to you as well. So I think that... The, the most interesting thing for me, as I said, about the why think big or think small theory is as I said, if you sort of start within, with a plan that is this large and scale it down, not in terms of execution, in terms of your ultimate vision, You know, is it exciting enough to hold you over the next five years, seven years, nine years? Is it not exciting enough to hold a team? You know, it's going to take the same amount of energy to build it. So you know, turn on the brightest light bulb you can because that's what it's going to take to sustain you as an entrepreneur. Um, Anybody know what operating range is? So operating range is um, kind of the core thesis I have that is almost the antithesis of what I just said, right. So I just talked about thinking really big, right. And if you have a vision, part of being an entrepreneur is really about communicating the size of that vision, right, and using it to sustain yourself and others. Um, the antithesis to that is, well, gee, an entrepreneur spends all their time you know, doing the heavy lifting and making sure the lights stay on for tomorrow, right? They make sure that everything that needs to get done between now and you know, delivering a package for tomorrow's customer or you know, doing a release that you know, is going to put new code on the site or uh, launching you know, another iteration of their app is all fundamentally very tactical. Operating range I think is the single most important leadership characteristic you can find in an entrepreneur and in an executive. And for me, uh, operating range is really about the ability to fly at 500 feet and then at 5,000 feet and then at 50,000 feet. And the judgment to know when to do each. The judgment to know when to do each. So when I think about operating range, I think there are people who fly tremendously well at 500 feet. There are people who apply tremendously well at 50,000 feet, right? The unique challenge of a founder, and in fact, even I think of uh, of people in the Valley running large organizations, is who has the ability to just keep going up and down, up and down. Um, I remember distinctly when, you know, in one of my early days at Google, sitting in an operating committee review with Larry and Sergey, and they fundamentally wanted to understand you know, the nuance on a CPC in some small country in this kind of vast, uh, you know, array of countries that I managed. And I watched the person who was in charge of that region fumble for an answer. And my fundamental thought was, how do I trust you to know the big stuff if you don't understand the key drivers of your business? So it's great that you want to be a large executive and, you know, work for a great brand like Google. But guess what, at the end of the day when the founders walk in and ask you, you know, what is the difference in CPC between, you know, this vertical in country X and country Y, you damn well better know the answer, right. This is a, this is a valley and a place driven by data, right. The same thing holds true for a founder. If all of you are founders and hope to go out and raise money, right, what is a venture capitalist looking for? They're looking for your ability to extort a vision, right, that sits at 50,000 feet. And then there you're judging your ability to fly really low, right, and manage at 50 feet, right, and to understand of all the metrics you could possibly look at, the five that matter, and have complete command of that data. Right? But you can't stay at 50 feet, right, because again, you know, the best and I think most successful leaders of any ilk, entrepreneurs or executives, know exactly when to pull back up, right, and it's the art of pulling, uh, flying high and low, that in my mind is one of the key characteristics of great entrepreneurs. You know, I think that the, there's sort of a fundamental kind of essence here, right? Which is a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, and a lot of famous founders are kind of a pain in the ass, right? You don't read books about them where they talk about how wonderful they are, or, and I'm sure a lot of you have that, read the Steve Jobs book, or, you know, about sort of their great and glorious management style of being all warm and fuzzy. But what you do see quite often is just a pain in the ass attention to detail, right? It is like this precise care, right, for the mastery of their product, right? And then it's the ability to walk out, you know, and give a pitch on stage to 50,000 people or, you know, launch a new product. But it's both, right? And that doesn't actually go away, right? The best founders hold that in their in their kind of toolkit and as the essence of who they are all the way through the journey of building a company. And so I think that as you guys think about what it means to be a founder, you know, the best founders I don't think ever leave this mode and the best executives, at least in the valley, you know, recognize this mode because, again, large and small, we're all driven, right, by the ability to have the nuanced judgment in a data-driven environment on when do you need to understand the details that make the difference in how, and how your product works or how your business works, and when do you need to be able to extol a vision that can get everyone aroused and motivated you know, for the years to come. <clears throat> so my key thesis on decision-making is gut, data, gut. Right? When you think about how to make decisions, I think one of the big challenges we all have is, as data-driven as we are, the data is imperfect. And more important for a founder, it's actually non-existent, right. If we talk about being the product profit, you're thinking about the slight tweak in or major shift in something you expect in consumer behavior. And de facto it doesn't exist, right. There are analogies but there is no data for what, you, what it is you have to do. You know, so there is the you know, paralysis by analysis. You know, there are people who fly entirely by gut. And I think of, of, of the mode in between, right. And the mode in between I called gut data gut, right? So you have a gut sense that this idea, you know, for a consumer product or feature or app or mobile app or whatever could be it, right? The most important thing is actually your rate of learning. Right? So how do you lean right in, right? Follow your gut to get some data set, whatever that data set is. Right? So when we were starting Joyous, you know, my very first thought of it, as we chatted about, was I don't want to be an entrepreneur again. God, I'm tired. Like really? Am I really going to do this again when you know, I could step into a company at a much larger stage and just lead it with everything figured out. So I wrote the business plan a month after I left Polyvore in October of 2010. Um, and I didn't start the company for three months, right. But the idea kept sort of bugging me. But what I did do is somewhere around October, or November, I sent out an email to my former Yodely co-founders, all the engineering uh, folks I'd worked with, and I said, I need, a, I need an engineer to just start coding something for me. Right, and I'm like curious about this. You know, and, and of course, you know, just through my network, a bunch of engineers showed up and um, I picked one that um, we'd, I'd worked with before at Yodely and he started coding for me. And then in sort of a little bit later, I think it was maybe December, I went to a woman I knew who was a blogger and I was like, what do you think of this idea, is it idiotic? And she's like, been blogging for 10 years. She's like, I don't think so. I'm like, would you shoot a video for me? She's like, okay, stuck her in front of a camera, you know. Um, January, I come back from vacation. I'm still sort of irritated and struggling with the idea of like, will I start another company and I do, am I really up for the task? The idea is bugging me, you know. And I'm like, oh, okay, let me put together a focus group. So then I get 12 women in a room who are friends. I shoot three videos on kind of January 5th or something. Um, I put them up in front of 12 women, right. Tape them, listen to their answers to these crappy four videos, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, I have no choice but to start this company. I have no choice. I'm listening to what these women are saying, and I'm like, there is something here. And if I don't pursue it, I will just be so frustrated. And we launched our first video on February 4th, 2011, on Weebly. No checkout, you know, no integrated sexy shopping experience through video, no premium content, literally a video a week, buying clothes at retail, right, on a Weebly site just to measure with a PayPal checkout, right, launched two weeks later, just to understand what the correlation was between a video and conversion, like leave everything else aside, right. And we ran it for five months. We just kept adding women and we just in. But it was simply the act of saying like, look, I have a gut, now I need to just go get a data set, right. You know, and after, and the data set was very incomplete, right, but a month four I was like, okay, I'm going to go raise some venture capital. You know, we raised $8 million, closed around, and I was like, I guess we're launching a company, right. But it was sort of gut, data, gut, is my, my point. So there is no perfect data, there is no perfect gut. What happens is, you know, as you go through experience after experience, what you think of as gut is actually familiarity with a lot of diverse circumstances and it starts to speak back to you as a gut. So when I was 25, I didn't have a gut. You know, if you asked me what was a good idea from a bad idea, I had no gut, I had no experience. I mean you know, I had some intuitions, right. But I think of gut you know, after this cycle as informed intuition. You know, now you have a data set, it's still imperfect. That doesn't mean you, you go in favor of the data set. It may mean that you, know, you still decide not to start a company. But the point is simply that the act of collecting data and seeing a diverse number of scenarios over time are both things that help you develop a sense of intuition or familiarity for experiences. You know, and so I think that is, that is part of the cycle. And I think that, again, the most impressive entrepreneurs I've seen you know, have this combination of both instinct, right, kind of uh, respect for the data, and then all the way back to instinct, even if it flies in the face of their data. But it is informed by the data and informed by a set of experiences that speak to the back as intuition. So I think this is one of the most interesting things if you all are thinking about starting companies. Um, Your company most of all reflects you, right? Not reflects on you, reflects you, (laughs) right? Like you will look in the mirror one day at the company you created and you will see yourself right, for good and for bad. (laughs) You will see every, especially if you're the founder, you are going to see reflected back to you everything that, um, that you are. So the question is, who are you? I mean, really, who are you, right? I often say to undergrad classes, what is your trademark strength? Everybody here know what their trademark strength is? If you know what your trademark strength is, put up your hand. Six people in the room know what their trademark strength is. Interesting, right? You're about to go build an entire company around yourself. What is your role to play in that? You know, it's the most interesting thing to me about trademark strengths is, and I say to every single person, is, you know, as we grow up, we have the sense of who we are, and as we go to school and we think of what we're good at, but often without anybody to reflect it back to us, you know, it's not a precise picture, right? And it's it's so interesting to me that when I was, I don't know, I think I was probably 16, 17, I was in my final two years of high school and we had a television studio and I thought I might want to become a television director because we could film uh, videos and documentaries and it's uh, something that I loved. And I had, I think I was applying to school and I had a scholarship application and my television arts teacher wrote a reference for me. And I got to read the reference, you know, as I was sending it in. And it was like, like, what is Sukindra's best quality? And he was like, empathy. Totally didn't expect that answer. I was like, empathy? What? Like he didn't say intelligent, he didn't say smart, he didn't say quick-witted, he didn't say anything. He said empathy, right? It was like such an odd reflection to me of myself, right? You know, 20 years later, whatever it is, maybe more, if I, like I said, I can't even calculate my age, um, I sit back and I'm like, I get it. You know, because now having been a leader for 20 years, It is amazing to me, even though I am a very difficult person to work for, right, and very tough, how empathetic people who've worked with me think I am. I had no freaking clue. It would not be the first word I used to describe myself, right. But I will tell you that now when I look back, I was like, yeah, he was absolutely right. It's what defines me as a leader. Who knew? Like, who knew that people will work for me again and again and again because they think I'm invested in who they are? No clue, right. But it is part of what helps me build a company. It's part of what lets me be an entrepreneur again. Right? It's part of what you know, helps me bring a, build a team rapidly because people want to work for me. right? Great. <laughs> you know, but it wasn't that it was architected. It was just it was a reflection back to me of who I am. right? And so I think one of the things in your journey to whatever you do, whether it's being an entrepreneur, whether it's being an executive, whether it's you know, joining a startup, whatever it is, is understanding who you are. Because your trademark strength has a great deal to do with the company you're going to build. Right? Um, going hand-in-hand hand with that is owning your feelings and what's important to you, right? So you know, I'm not a big believer in like false modesty, right? In founders who say, well oh, gee, I don't want to be the CEO. I'm okay not being the CEO. And, you know, I sit on a lot of boards. I'm like, are you really okay not being the CEO? You say you're okay not being the CEO. But what's going to happen when a CEO shows up? You know, are you going to passively, aggressively resist him the whole way through because you weren't willing to say, gee, you know what, I think I really want to be the CEO and have an honest discussion about it. You know, If you're creating a company, part of it, you know, whatever part that is, has your personal ambitions invested in it, right, own that. Right? After Polyvore, which is really tough for me, it was very tough you know, for the only second time in my career to really walk away from something and say this isn't going to work. You know, I joined as a CEO and it isn't going to work. And it was a very, you know, it was a difficult decision and it was difficult in the period post-leaving Polyvore. You know, when people asked me what I wanted to do next, I said, you know, if I ever really start, if I ever go to a small company again, it will be my own. It just will. So when, you know, people would call me about running their startup post-polyvore, I was just like, you know what, just got to tell you. Like it may be irrational, whatever. It's really important to me, you know, to really, if I'm going to build something, have my culture and my values on it, for good or for bad. It's just important to me. So I know this may be the most important and incredible company opportunity in the world as a small, but if I'm going to go small, it's going to be mine. You know? Otherwise, I'm happy to join as a professional CEO and think about all those things and I looked at all those opportunities. But being able to acknowledge that that was important to me, that I wanted to build a company that reflected my values, yeah. Admit it. Own up to it, right? I mean, I think it is part of the essence of who you are. And I will tell you the most unconstructive dynamic in a partnership with a founder or in a company is not being able to own the accountability for who you are and what you put into it, right? Um, The third thing is obviously knowing who you are helps you complement yourself with your counterpart, right? So one of the reasons I went to Polyvore, which I still hold as as a kind of foundational thesis, is in that company I loved the engineering team, right? I loved the product lead. I'm like, I just felt like they were a great complement to who I am. Whether it worked out or not, I still believe in the thesis of, look, I've grown up in general management, people leadership, business development, sales, right? What is it that I need to be successful, right? What type of company would I want to go be the CEO of, right? And it's all about the complementary skill set. The second thing it's about is, of course, is building a team that is able to challenge who you are. So one of the things I acknowledge is if the upside of my own trademark strength is energy, passion, hustle, drive, right, the downside of that is if you're in a room with me, you may feel like you don't have the chance to say anything, right. All right, if you look at my management team at Joyous, it is five women who are as strong as I am. Like not a single one of them you know, has, has the uh, has a fear of telling me that they disagree with me, right. They can hold their own. That is what it takes for me to have a diverse management team, right? And so I think it's all about understanding who you are and what the complement to that is, right? Because if you're going to build a successful company, again, it's about constructing a team around you. Um, and then the last thing, and maybe this is the most important thing, and if I could, um, if I could uh, borrow from a moment for, from Oprah Winfrey, I will, um, who recently came to the Valley, as you know, to Facebook and, um, and then did some private events. The last thing about knowing your trademark strength is playing to playing to it and maximizing it. And this comes all the way back to my first point. A company that is built around you will inherently, you know, need to maximize you to make it successful, right? So where is that ultimate contribution? And I think that for you to achieve your highest aim with any company you build is about being the best version of yourself, not somebody else, but of yourself, right? So if you just are an amazing programmer and it's what you love to do. Yeah, you really have to ask yourself, you know, what is my highest contribution to this company? What does it need from me? And what happiness feels like is when there's a total alignment between what you're doing and your vocation, you know, and the best version of who you are. Right. So when I started Joyous, I started it as a premium content play. Right. I didn't do a UGC play. Right. And you ask why. And part of the reasons why is because I knew that the barrier to entry in this space was capital and business execution. Those are things that I do well, uniquely well, right. So I could go start a UGC Play, right, and go build a peer-to-peer video commerce marketplace and I'd be competing with all of you, right. Many of whom code a hell of a lot better than I do, (laughs) I'm sure. But more importantly, it's, you know, I went to where my skill sets lay, right. Because if I'm going to be the founder of a company, I need to play to my own strengths. Right? Yes, compliment them, but play to them. And the same thing holds for all of you. So, you know, so I think the best company you can start looks like one in which your unique contribution plays to your trademark strengths. Right? And understanding this is a fundamental part you know, of achieving success, I think, in anything but most of all in a company that you start. Um, so what's the value of speed, right? Lots of people talk about being really fast. You know, and you sort of say, well, if the journey is going to take a while and it's going to have all these you know, inflection points and it's going to be this journey that's sometimes horizontal and up and to the right and then horizontal again, like should I be thoughtful or should I be fast, right? And I think the, the most interesting thing people think about when they think about the value of speed you know, in iterations and you know, product releases or what have you is about the rate of progress. I think it's about the rate of learning, right? So as you all know, there are many examples in the Valley of companies that weren't the first in their field. You know, Google certainly wasn't the first on performance advertising. You know, Pinterest was not the first mood board. Facebook was not the first social network, right? It wasn't always about being first, but it was about the rate of somebody's learning on top of yours, if you were the first player, at a faster rate, right? And so speed is not to be confused with market timing. Because you can be as speedy as you want, you know, and there is still in some ways an element that is out of your control, right, which is when is the customer ready for what you have, right. At Yodaly the best example is 10 years ago we thought we had a data platform, right, for financial data and that the customer would want to aggregate their financial data in a single place. And for seven years, Yodaly ticked along. And you know when Yodaly became hot again? When Mint got sold for $170 million. It was like, ah, that's what a data platform is. You know, it took seven or eight years for people to understand or for the market to be ready, right? It took a, you know, a beautiful consumer application in financial services for people to recognize the value of a data platform. We were wrong on timing, right? But we were right on speed because all the way through that journey, right? I think Yodely was successful in learning at a faster rate than anyone else. The other key benefit of speed, of course, is market conditions change. And, you know, and your ability to respond to those changes as an entrepreneur may be the difference you know, between whether or not you have enough money to make it to your next round, you know, or to make it to your next milestone or not. You know, and the key example I would give here is that um, when we started Yodeling in the early days, it was 1999, plenty of money. We raised $50 million in our first round from Sequoia and Excel. Things were going you know, well, but we had this competitor called Vertical One. And they were doing B two B, while we were doing B two C. We really thought, hey, the key is to become a consumer destination, aggregate everybody's data. We can be the next Yahoo, you know, but my Yahoo. And Vertical One, meanwhile, was working with um, banks and brokerage companies and licensing their data. And you know, we could have continued on our way. There was no, there was no, um, there was no capital shortage at that point, or even sort of lack of. It was a, you know, it was a, the first bubble. But what there was was a lot of competitive pressure because Vertical One was going out and pitching banks and they were calling us. And we wanted to stay on a B2C platform and Vertical One was, was really pitching on these banks. And we walked into one board meeting three months after we started the company, a month and a half after we raised $15 million on a B2C vision. And we chatted about what Vertical One was doing and how we had the risk of Citibank and you know, Merrill Lynch and Bank of America and all these other players having, having their consumers access somebody else's product. And we walked out of the board meeting and it pivoted to a B2B company. Um, Then we went out and we acquired our competitor. And in 18 months, we locked up every bank and brokerage company in, in the country, everyone, right? Then we raised $52 million from AOL. And a month later, the bust came. And every company went out of business, and we had $52 million in the bank, and 30 plus banks that were counting on us for our technology. And that's how we stayed alive, right? From 2002 to 2004, 2005. So speed was of the essence, right, because the market shifted, right. Not to be confused, as I I said, market readiness for your product. You know, but I think the value is not being the first. The value is the rate of your learning, you know. And you want, if anybody's going to cannibalize you on your own business, you'd rather it was you, (laughs) right. And if anybody's going to figure out what the tweak is on top of your platform, you know, that makes it go from here to here, you'd rather it be you. So it's all about the rate of learning and ultimately the rate of progress, but really about the rate of learning. Um, how many of you read Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell's book? So a fair number of you, right? So as you know, one of the core theses of his, of his book, which I think is exactly right, is, um, is, it, is success born or bred, right? And he basically did, for those of you who didn't read the book, did a study of you know, some of the most successful people, including Bill Gates and concert pianists and others. And of course, one of the common threads was they all had more than 10,000 hours you know, at their trade under their belt um, uh, before they became successful. Right. So this comes back to knowing your trademark strength. And is it important to be a generalist or a specialist if you want to be a founder? Right if you want to be an executive. Again, I think this is, this is something that applies that holds true in kind of in any sphere of, of, of leadership. You know, One of the things I struggle with is you ask me, what do you want to be? I want to be an entrepreneur. What do you want to be? I want to be a CEO. Okay. Okay. Now what? Right. If you go back to the, the thesis of sort of where you, where may you get an instinct of what sits around a corner, right, it may be where you have expertise, right, it may be, and that doesn't always have to be consumer expertise, it may be back-end expertise, it may be coding expertise, what have you. Where are you an expert, right? Because that only not may help shed, you shed light on where your product profit. It also may be the thing that brings founding opportunities to you, right? So there are many paths to being a founder, there are many paths to being a CEO. One of the surest paths is to be a master of your trade. I'll come back to it, a master of your trade. And often in the Valley that's functional, Right, you know, It may be vertical, right? but it is about becoming a deep expert at one thing. Right? I got my first opportunity to start a company because I was great at biz dev, really, sales and biz dev, right. So I went to, I think we chatted about the fact that I went to Jungly, which was this um, startup. It had four great Indian founders. I became a biz dev manager. Lo and behold, I figured out I was good at it in the right environment, um, in an environment that lined up with my trademark values. Right. Hustle, candor, you know. When I ended up in that environment, I flourished and, you know, and I've been lucky to have that at Google as well. But the reality was, you know, as I was there, I, you know, I got known for biz dev. I went to Amazon, I got known for biz dev. Right. I get a call, you know, somebody knows I want to be an entrepreneur, I get a call from angel investors in yodely who are like, look, we've got four engineers who need a biz dev um, and a business founder. Somebody to go raise money, figure out the business plan, do all those things. We know that's you, right? Today I think for, for, for most people who look at investing behind me, it's about my ability to do biz dev. <laughs> you know, it's about my ability to raise money. You know, there are core competencies I have, right? And I went vertically you know, up a functional path, right? At Google I became a general manager, president of region because I knew how to you know, drive revenue. I knew how to hire great people and drive revenue, right? Same reason I became a CEO, right? I know how to scale. You know, so so I think it is so important for you in that conversation in your head about your trademark strength, right? To think about what is the vector on which you are going to overachieve, what is your vector of impact, right? And pursue it, right? Because that is the path to opportunity. It is the path to figuring out your founding opportunity. It is the path to figuring out, you know, getting called on an opportunity. It is the path, you know. And I know there's a lot of temptation to stay broad, right? My own recommendation has always been, hey, you know, figure out the lane that you love, you know, and go become the best person you can be in it. Because that's when people are going to pick up the phone and call you, right, and ask you to become a co-founder, or ask you to join an early stage startup, you know, or where you may have the unique insight to become that product profit. And I think it's, you know, I think it's important, can't be underestimated. So, Um, Last thing, the last things I want to talk about if you're going to become a founder how do you hire, how do you fire, how do you partner? Right? Um, So I think this is, I think the notion of how you hire is sort of um, a super important one because you're going to build a company entirely around you and you sort of think, okay, who are the people I want to be in the boat with? And I think that this is, you know, probably the most critical thing in a startup. Um, so one of my first philosophies is in a startup, you always have this anxiety because you've got to ship a product. You've got to ship a product fast. Like progress really is held up by every single person you don't hire. We talked about starting companies about finding the first person who's going to get in the boat with you, right? Then the second and the third, even, they're just, even if they're just your graphic designer, you know, and designing your logo, what have you. So in, in the world of hiring, I think the most important thing is, okay, you've got progress to be made, and you've got the standards of the people you want to work with. So what do you do, right? What do you do if you can't find the person you know, to get you started? Well, one of the first things I always say to people is if you can't hire the person you want, you hire the number two to the person you want. You know, and you wait and see if they can do the job, right? Don't compromise on the quality and the values of the people you want to hire. Everybody talks about that. Don't compromise, don't compromise, don't compromise. But in a world where you need to make progress, what does that actually tactically mean? You know, when I went out to to launch Google Brazil, we needed to get it launched in three or four months, We had that, we were on a plan to launch six, seven, eight countries a year, right. And we had to go. Like, I mean, I could say a and say, okay, I didn't find the right person, just going to sit back. But it was a pressing opportunity. So we we found a guy that we loved, we just didn't think he was our number one. And I was not willing to compromise on that job. So we hired him. I said, you're a director of sales. That job is there if you want it you know, show me you can do it, right. And I think the most important thing in the world of making progress is you will get a lot of pressure on the person who wants to be your co-founder or your CEO or all of these things, right. But the most important thing you can do is assess their fit, their skill set, their value set, and most importantly, you know, give yourself the space to be wrong, right. Because what we all know about startups, right, for good or for bad, is the game changes every six months? You have no idea what the skill set is that you're going to need six months from now. You have a thesis, right? And a lot of times there's this person who looks amazing on paper, right? But you won't know until you get there, right? And it's about constructing what I think of as optionality, right? That doesn't mean you never make a high risk hire. It doesn't mean if you find the person that, you know, meshes with you, don't go there. But it's about how do you get enough of a data set, you know, particularly on your highest risk hires. What are the other things to watch for? You know, I think the other things to watch for when you hire, the biggest ego in the room, right. I mean, I have hired a lot of people who, quite frankly, could have been my boss, right. Every job I've ever had I've been completely unqualified for, including running Asia Pack and LATAM for Google. Luckily enough, I got the opportunity and I got to continue to hire people who could have had that job, right. You know, I'm always a fan of like really smart and talented people often have big egos, right. That's okay. However, you know, what you want to watch for is you know, how much of is their ego driving the conversation, particularly as you start to get down to the short strokes of negotiating with someone, you start to see, you know, how much of the command of the conversation is about what's important to them versus what's important to the company. Right? And so big egos require a lot of management, right? So big ego, completely capable, fantastic, awesome, right. Big ego, spends all your time thinking about what needs to be in it for them, red flag. And usually those red flags show up in the final stages of your interview process or your negotiation process, right. So one of the things I would say to watch for is you know, the more senior, the higher, the, most, the more expensive they are, watch how they conduct themselves in those final conversations because therein are the signals. (laughs) You know, you hope of yes you want somebody who you know is thoughtful and you know understands their worth and all of that. But you also see the signals about how they weigh their own agenda versus the agenda of what's important to the company. I think another big thing. Um, So I think the more difficult question of course is how do you fire? Right. And Fire is like a terrible word. It looks good on a screen. You know, fit in, fit on my slide. It's not it's not the word I like to use. More importantly, I think the question is, what do you do when it doesn't work out? And you know it's interesting. If you talk to people who are business leaders of one type or another and you sort of say, and you know, you interview them for what have you, and say, what's your biggest regret? They almost never say, you know, it's that deal I didn't do, it's the merger that didn't work out, it's the product iteration I tried that didn't work they almost always say, you know, there's this guy I hired and it didn't work out and I probably let it go six months too long. Right. Um, The problem though, and this is thus the image, is that you know, startups are a contact sport, right. But they're a high contact sport in a small arena. Okay. So if somebody's not working out, right, there's nowhere to go. Right. It's not like a large company where you can move somebody from, a, you know, from one group to another and hope that they're in, they find their culture fit or whatever. Right. And the challenge that you have, of course, is in the time it takes you to make that decision. Right. This person is like looping around the rink, bumping into, you know, every other person on the team. Right. And the downward effect on energy and passion and culture is massive. Right. And so, you know, when you think about like, sort of, as you get into your first founding situations and are watching a situation and it's nickeling at you, you know, that something is not quite right and that your expectations of someone are sort of, I think, you sort of say, like, wow, well, how long do you let it go, right? I would submit to you that in the valley, you know, within the first three months, you can tell if somebody's hitting it or not. With by six months, you know, you've seen them, like, in the world in which we live, Six months is a hell of a long time, right. You're starting to see how they operate, you know, beyond their initial period, right. And almost every situation I've been in, you know, particularly as I've gotten more experience managing people, by month three I'm like, this is really bothering me. <laughs> and, by m- and now all I've learned is the decisions that would take me a year and a half to make, you know, when I was at Yodely, I now make in between month three and month six, you know and it's not only good for you of course it's good for that person if it's not going to fit mm-hmm. you know to call it because it's very hard in a startup right you now look in many ways i think you know this is probably one of the most difficult things to do is to you know learn to have those conversations early but the risk for you as a leader of not doing it is having a team that then looks and says look you know do you understand the effect on the rest of us to not have you know an uprevving at any point of time of the energy and culture of the company, but you know instead kind of a negative force. Right? Um, the other thing for which I would, for lack of a better word, fire the get on the boat or get off the boat kind of person. And what I mean by this is simple: building a company is really hard. Okay, there are no easy decisions when it comes to the when it comes to the ones that require debate. Right, there are five possible roads you have to pick one, you don't know which one is right. We talked about the gut-data-gut cycle which is you have a gut, you go, you get data, you, know, you retrench or continue down that path, right, it's this constant iterative process. Right, but if the decisions were easy, they would be easily made, okay. So there are lots of decisions you're going to have as a company that are fairly controversial. But the single other most destructive force in your company besides somebody who's you know for whatever reason you know not a culture fit or not able to perform at the same level as others, um, is really the person who's plenty smart, okay, plenty smart. But after you leave the room in a contentious decision and debate has happened and decisions have been made, they spend all of their time in five other conversations talking about whether or not that was the right decision, right. Which is very different from debate that's constructive and open and in the room and also very different from, you know, as a founder or leader or whatever, being able to come to you and say, hey, look, still concerned about this. But the divisive factor is the one that takes an entire team and pulls them back and has them recircle again and again on a decision, right. So I'm not a believer in consensus, right. I'm a believer in huge debate, right, the ability for everybody's voices to be heard. You make a decision, you go, right. And you go in an egoless way, which means if it was the wrong decision, you're like, okay, we got more data, we look at it, we retrench, right. And everybody, everybody can make, you know, good and bad decisions, right. It's all about the quality of the debate, right, and the data that's available to you. But the more important thing is really how do you create a culture where as I said, you know, you can make a, a, a decision on which there's a lot of debate and have people leave the room unified, right, because it's already hard enough. You know it's a hard decision. You know at best you're 50, 50% right or 60 or what have you. Now your goal is to go get data, right, and be the first to admit it. If you're wrong, right, what have you. Your goal is not to have one of the people walk out of the room, right? And usurp everything you're trying to create from a cultural perspective, right? And that is the other force I would watch for within a company, right? And really think about what, you know, again, no matter how smart is it constructive, you know, for a team to operate that way. Um, last thing, how do you partner? So, of course, the, I think you know, starting a company, and often, most times, it's with somebody else, is like a marriage. Really, I mean, how many of you are married? A few, right? Okay. <laughs> yeah, you guys. The rest of you still have, you know, a lots of freedom, right? Um, but if you were to think about it, it basically is like having a second spouse, and you know, or second girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever the analogy is. You know, but I think the most interesting thing is it's probably the biggest risk you face is who you partner with, right? And it is in many ways like a marriage, right. So you want to to think about who is it that you you want to get in bed with. If you have previous experience with them, great. If you don't, how do you diligence it, right. How do you diligence it? It is amazing to me the number of people who hire other people without ever trying to find people in their network who know them. I mean it's amazing to me how many people hire other people on one interview, you know. where is the real data set on how the person you're going to partner with performs? How do their values align with yours, right? How do you get that data? How do you get into an environment where you can work with them? You know, I would just observe, you know, this is probably the single biggest risk in the startup, right? And that that risk doesn't necessarily go away. You just do the best you can, right? I looked at Polyvore for for two years before I joined this CEO. I had coffee date after coffee date with the founder, we had complete intellectual parity and I sort of loved his capabilities. And I think he loved mine, right. But at the end of the day, at the point at which we went from dating to a marriage, it was still completely different, right. And our values didn't align in the same way, right. But do I feel like I went into that situation not knowing um, the things that ultimately caused us not to stay together? No, I knew them, right. Because I had spent two, two years with him. I'd spent time you know, with people who knew him right, and I'm sure him with me, right. So that doesn't mean the marriage works, right, but you want to go into it with as much data as possible, right. And I guess that's all I'm advocating is really how do you go into it with as much data as possible. And of course even if it's not a founder but a very senior hire, same thing, right. How to use every available resource, you know, to figure out your alignment with this person. Um, Last couple things. So you're, you're inevitably going to fail, okay, inevitably. I mean if you think, You know, if we all think about sort of founder stories, everybody talks about the point at which they thought they weren't going to make it or what have you, right. Um, The most important thing is you know one foot in front of the other, like literally. It's just about getting up and living through that cycle, whatever it is, whether it's a bus cycle on financing, whether it was us in China when there were many days, I was like, wow, this is really hard. It's really hard to be the only person advocating for China you know, in a company where there was a, there was a lot of headwind to um, entering the market. You know, it was really hard post Polyvore to be like, wow, that didn't work out, right? And so, in those periods, right, you just are like, what do you do? And the single biggest characteristic of an entrepreneur, again, just one foot in front of the other. Like everything in this life is cyclical: your marriage, your dating life, your you know, your finances, everything, right? And it will all come back. But what everybody is looking at for you, including for your investors, is how do you just simply continue to go, right? As we talked about, when all else fails, you've got to hang on and persist, <laughs> persist, right? It is really about persistence. You know, and we talk about it, you know, just to sort of conclude, you know, look, there is this journey, as I said, between now and up and to the right, there is this journey. And how you conduct yourself during this period is what defines great entrepreneurs, all right? You know, Yes, many of them are defined by having built a successful product, but most of them are defined by how they built it as well. And so when you think about whether your first startup is a success or a failure or what have you, You know, two pieces of advice. The most important thing you're going to take with you, besides that trademark strength, is your reputation. Right? This is a very small valley. Every single opportunity I've been given has not come through an interview, it's come simply through referral. And so you know, the thing you are going to take out of any journey, entrepreneurial, successful or not, is your reputation. And how you conduct yourself right, is a single biggest thing um, you can have as, a, as an entrepreneur. The last thing, of course, you know, I'm going to appeal to you all to start companies. You know, I know you're thinking about it. Some, that's why some of you in this lecture series in here. In here. You know, for me, right, as I said, the, the hardest thing about becoming an entrepreneur again 20 years after the first time or 15 or whatever it was, was really letting irrationality win. Right. Like there is the left side of your brain and the right side. There is the probabilities of success or not. There's all the data on the number of startups that fail or succeed. And at the end of it all, right, starting a company is in many ways the most irrational but most rewarding decision. Right. And if you believe that, you know, as we talked about, that it's all about the journey, right, and about what defines, you know, a great leader, right, you will come out of it, you know, failure or success. A better leader than you started, right? And having delivered more impact in a nonlinear way than probably every any other thing you've done in your career, right? So I'm all for it, and I'm all for it at a young age when there's no legacy and the opportunity to be totally irrational. Thanks very much. You have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.